morning. morning. How's everybody doing? All right, we're doing good. <laughs> That's great. Hey, oh, all right. Hey, uh, my name's Ty. I'm one of the pastors. It really is a joy to be with each and every one of you this morning. Uh, I got a couple announcements before we get started. Uh, number one, uh, if you are new to Grace Point Church or you're new to Las Vegas, or maybe this is your first Sunday back after Easter, I just want to say welcome. We are glad you're here. Uh, but maybe you feel like, hey, I haven't connected to anyone yet. I've been here for a little while and just don't know if I know anyone. Uh, well, we've got good news for you today. We're having starting point at 4.30 out in the lobby. Uh, it's informal. Just don't need to sign up or anything. Just show up. It'll be a great opportunity to meet some of the pastors. I'll be there, and staff, and some people of Grace Point Church. There's cold coffee, hot coffee, tasty treats. And so don't miss an opportunity to connect with other people today at 4.30 right out in the lobby. And then the second announcement is this. Uh, maybe you were with us about a year or so ago. We did a basic leadership course. Uh, I think it was about like six or seven sessions that we did of like, what does it look like to lead yourself? That way you can help lead others as well. Well, we've kind of got the next layer or next level of that. Think of that as 101. This is going to be 201 called the Intermediate uh, Leadership Course. And so maybe you lead uh, others, maybe you lead in your job, maybe you lead within the military or school or whatever that looks like in your community. You are a leader and you want to continue to grow in your leadership. We have this for you on May 4th and 5th. And so make sure you scan the third QR code right there and sign up for that. And I guarantee it will be beneficial and help you grow in your leadership. Sound good? Okay. Today is a big day for growth. Grace Point Church. And that needs to stop. <laughs> Let me make sure that uh, today is a big day for Grace Point Church. Uh, today is going to be a game changer for us as a people group. Uh, we will never be the same after what is going to happen today. Now you may be wondering, like, what in the world is going on? Ty, are you moving? No, you can't get rid of me that easy. Or like, are we going to change the philosophy of our ministry here? No. Are we going to change the doctrines and theology? No. Well, then why is it such a big day? Well, today we are beginning the journey through the book of Romans. Now, I know for some of you, you hear that and you're like, whoopee-doo, like it's not a big deal to you. Uh, and for some of you, you're probably like, what is the book of Romans? I thought we'd go through the Bible. What does that even mean? Well, even the word Bible, the Bible uh, somewhat means library. What you have in your hands there, or potentially we want to get into your hands, is this library of books uh, that is inspired by God. And so one of those books is called the book of Romans. And so for some of you, maybe you're new to Jesus or maybe you not yet have trusted Jesus. I guarantee you that if you commit to being in here each and every Sunday and sitting under God's word and listening to it, you are going to understand more about yourself. You're going to understand more about Jesus. You're going to understand more about theology, doctrine, and all those fun things, and the world around you. You will grow. And for some of you, maybe you've been following Jesus for a long time. I guarantee as we go through this book, it's going to take us about a year and a half. I guarantee you will be challenged in ways you've never been challenged before. I guarantee you'll be comforted exactly where you need comfort. And I guarantee you will be convicted in areas you don't want conviction. Guarantee it. Why is that? Because here's the thing about the book of Romans. It is deep and it is wide. It is much like a swimming pool. So if you're not yet a Christian, it has a shallow end in it where you can dabble your toes in it and, and understand and experience the water a bit. 
For some of you who are newer Christians, you can swim around within this pool, and every once in a while you can dip down and touch your foot on the bottom to know you're safe. And for some of you who've been following Jesus for a long time, you're a seasoned Christian. Listen, you can dive in, belly flop, do whatever, and, and swim as far down as you can, and you will never touch the bottom. This is a crucial and important book within our library of the Bible. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and go to Romans chapter 1. That's where we're going to spend the bulk of our time today, Romans chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible here at Grace Point Church, we always say you're going to need a Bible. We lead, teach, and preach from the Bible. And so if you don't have one, don't feel bad. We've done you a solid. We have those in English and Spanish up here in the back and also at Center Point. Please grab one uh, sometime today. That is our free gift to you. And if you've got a smartphone, you can download version. All the stuff is on there as well. We'll be in Romans chapter 1. Uh, today's going to be a little bit different. It's kind of like an introduction, so it's going to be a lot heavy teaching, uh, just kind of figuring out what's going on here. But here's what I know about the Bible, and most specifically about the book of Romans. It has changed lives. It has changed churches. It has changed cultures. And I would argue it has changed the world over the, the years, the decades, and the, the seasons. Why? Because this book is all about Jesus, and it's all about his grace, his transforming, life-altering, uh, chains of religious breaking grace. And so what I want to do to begin with, I want to share, you, uh, share with you some stories of life change throughout the history of the Christian church. There was one guy by the name of Augustine, or Augustine, depends on where you're from. Augustine of Hippo, you ever heard of him? One of the greatest theologians and one of our church fathers. He was born on a small, small farm in what is now known as uh, Algeria. Uh, during his youth, he was both a slave to sexual passions, uh, but he was also a slave to his mother Monica's prayer. So he had a mama that was praying for him all the time. He was a teacher of literature and rhetoric, and he ended up moving to Milan, where he sat under the preaching of the bishop named Ambrose. And it was there during the summer, uh, summer of the year 386 AD, when he was 32 years old, he went out into the garden area, and he had a really uh, a troubled soul. Like for one place, he was living out his sexual passions and the lust of his flesh and all that. But then the other, he started hearing the preaching of the gospel, and he just didn't know what to do. Have you ever been in that situation before? This is what he said. I'm, uh, it'll be on the screen for you. This is what he said when he was seeking solitude. He says, The tumult of my heart took me out into the garden. He wrote later in his confessions, where no one could interfere with the burning struggle with myself in which I was engaged. I was twisting and turning in my chains. I threw myself down somewhere under a certain fig tree and let my tears flow freely. Suddenly, I heard a voice from the nearby house chanting as if it may be a boy or a girl, saying and repeating over and over again, pick up and read, pick up and read. I interpreted it solely as a divine command to me to open the book and read the first chapter I might find. So I hurried back to the place where I had put down the book of the apostle, talking about Romans, when I got up. I seized it, opened it, and in silence read the first passage on which my eyes lit. You know what the first passage was? It was Romans 13, verse 13 and 14. You don't have to go there. I'll put it on the screen. This is what he read. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies or drunkenness, not in sexual immorality or sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provisions for the flesh to gratify its desires. He later on says this, I neither wished nor needed to read further. I love that. Like that was enough. I read enough. At once with the last words of this sentence, it was as if a light of relief from all my anxieties flooded into my heart. All the shadows of doubts were dispelled. 
The book of Romans changed. God used the book of Romans to change Augustine's life. And I would argue he is one of the greatest church fathers of, of our history. There's another guy by the name of Martin Luther. Now, in church, when we say Martin Luther, you have two choices there, typically. Martin Luther, the reformer, and Martin Luther King, Jr. I'm talking about Martin Luther, the German monk reformer. Anyway, he was a German monk who had been taught that God required him to live a righteous life in order to be saved. So he was always taught, like, you've got to live a righteous life, and if you live a righteous life, then you will be saved. And so because of this, he had grown to hate God. He had grown to hate God because God required something of him that he could not fulfill. And so he hated God. And so then Ruth, Luther one day was reading Romans chapter 1, verse 17. Romans 1, 17 says this, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And this is what he quotes when he read that. I want you to hear this because some of you, you have this cooking inside of you. I labor diligently and anxiously as to how to understand Paul's word, the expression, the righteousness of God, blocked the way. Because I took it to mean that righteousness, whereby God is righteous and deals righteously in punishing the unrighteous. Although an impeccable monk, and he at one time said he was, and I think it's funny, the monkiest of monks, and I think that's just funny. He said that one time. He said a lot of things that are hilarious. He says, although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner. Therefore, I did not love a righteous, I did not love a righteous and angry God, but rather hated and murmured against him. Then I grasped that the righteousness of God that is, is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy God justifies us by faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn, and I have gone through open doors into paradise. I broke through, and as I formerly hated the expression, the righteousness of God, I now begin to regard it as my dearest and most comforting words. God used the book of Romans to change the life of Martin Luther. How important is that? Anyone know about the Reformation in the 1500s? Yeah, big, big deal right there. How important was the Reformation that God used Luther and many others to begin? Uh, one of my favorite authors, he was like an Episcopal priest, Episcopalian priest, I don't know how you say that, a priest, uh, and also a great chef. His name is Robert uh, Capon. He said this about the Reformation. The Reformation was a time when men went blind, staggering drunk because they had discovered in the dusty basement of late medievalism a whole cellar full of 1,500-year-old, 200-proof grace. Bottle after bottle, pure distilling of Scripture, one sip of which would convince anyone that God saves us single-handedly. The word of the gospel, after all those centuries of trying to lift yourself into heaven by worrying about the perfection of your bootstraps, suddenly turned out to be a flat announcement that the saved were home before they started. Grace has to be drunk straight. No water, no ice, and certainly no ginger ale. Neither goodness nor badness nor the flowers that bloom in the spring of super spirituality could be allowed to enter into the case. That's the grace that Martin Luther, Martin Luther found within the book of Romans. Martin Luther goes on, he says this later on when he comment, made a commentary on the book of Romans. He said, it, Romans, is a true masterpiece of the New Testament and the very purest gospel, which is well worthy and deserving that a Christian man, woman, should not only learn it by heart, word for word, but also that he should daily deal with it as the daily bread of men's soul. For it can never be too much or too well read or studied, and the more it is handled, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. 
Martin Luther, everybody. John Calvin, let me give you another one. John Calvin, what does he say about the book of Romans? He says, if we have gained a true understanding of this epistle, Romans, we have an open door to all the most profound treasures of Scripture. Now, you're like, Tyler, that's a lot of old dead people. Well, let me give you some newer dead people. R.C. Sproul. <laughs> one of my favorite theologians, R.C. Sproul, said this. No book, you ever heard of R.C. Sproul? If you haven't, read his stuff. It's amazing. R.C. Sproul said this. No book has had such a profound impact on my life as the book of Romans. John Stott died a handful of years ago as well. Paul's letter to the Romans is a kind of Christian manifesto. Charles Swindoll said this, Paul's letter to the believers in Rome can be called many things. Clearly, this became his magnum opus. It is the first systematic theology of the Christian faith. I love that. It's the first systematic theology of the Christian faith. This letter may be considered the believer's constitution, the Christian Magna Carta. We might even call it a manifesto of the new kingdom. It is not only declares our essential beliefs, it establishes our agenda as Christ's disciple. N.T. Wright, he's still alive as of right now. Let's give you a living guy. Paul's letter to the Christians in Rome and is, is his masterpiece. It covers many different topics from many different angles, bringing them all together into a fast-moving and compelling line of thought. Reading it sometimes feels like being swept along in a small boat on a swirling, bubbling river. We need to hold on tight if we're going to stay on board, but if we do, the energy and excitement of it all is unbeatable. James Boyce said this as well. We cling to man-centered, need-oriented teaching, and our churches show it. They are successful in worldly terms, big buildings, big budgets, big everything, but they suffer from a poverty of the soul. All this means, in my judgment at least, is that it's time to get back to the basic life-transforming doctrines of Christianity, which is to say that it's time to rediscover Romans. And Tony Evans, one of my favorite preachers, he said this, Romans is the constitution for the church. And in the words of me, Romans, good. So there you go. <laughs> but do you hear this? The impact that God has had through the book of Romans on individuals, on the church, on history, this huge impact changing the world. Imagine what God can do through it in you and me. Imagine what God can do right here to this church. Imagine how he can change our hearts, our homes, our workplaces, our culture, our community, and the world through his word. So enough about what everyone else has said about it. Let's read it. Romans 1.1. Are you there? That's awesome. Took me about, I don't know, 14 minutes to get there, but we'll get there. Hope you brought your snack with you. Romans 1.1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. And so we begin right there. The, the author of the letter identifies himself. His name is Paul. And if you know anything about the Bible, been in church a little while, Paul wrote a lot of the New Testament inspired by the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. But Paul's got a past. Paul's got a history. If you read in the book of Acts, uh, Paul did not like Christians. Paul was somewhat of a religious zealot, and he wanted Christians gone. He wanted to eradicate the world of all Christians, so therefore he would uh, plan out or he would lead out uh, the taking of their possessions, taking of their property, uh, taking of their homes, taking of their jobs, and the taking of their heads as well. He had Christians killed. So Paul, before Jesus, good guy or bad guy? Bad guy. 
like he's a, a religious zealot uh, that, that basically kind of like a Christian terrorist in some ways. And so uh, while he was out being a Christian terrorist, uh, he met Jesus, or better said, Jesus met him and transformed his life uh, and, and made him useful for the kingdom of God and made him a worshiper of Jesus. Can, can we just pause right there and hear how good of news that is? Like, like God can save a Christian terrorist. Any Christian terrorists here? I hope not. <laughs> but, but you can be saved. And so if he can save a Christian terrorist, guess what he can do with you? That, that is the grace of God right there. Like, don't, don't ever get used to the scandalous grace of God. It's not about what you have done or about what you are doing. It's all about what Jesus has done and what Jesus is doing. That is the good news of the gospel. Now, when you look at the introduction of the book of Romans and you compare it to other writings that Paul has done, this looks like the seven verses that we're going through today, a very lengthy introduction from Paul. So when we look at this, we need to ask the question, why is it so lengthy? Why is Paul giving them this big introduction? And I think the reason why is because the church in Rome, they do not know who Paul is. Paul did not plant this church, and nor at the time of writing, we don't believe that he even visited that church, though they had never seen Paul. So now that invites us to ask the question, well, who planted the church in Rome? And the answer is, I don't know. But perhaps, perhaps, remember that scene in the book of Acts? In the book of Acts, everyone's there uh, from all over the region, all over different countries. It's the day of Pentecost and all that. And, and God does something different. He pours out his spirit on the people and people from all different areas and all different uh, nations and all different languages. They all start speaking uh, and people can hear them in their own language. That's what the tongues mean right there, that everyone can understand their own language. Like if someone's speaking Spanish and someone's speaking English and someone's speaking Kentucky English, they would all understand one another. Kind of the same. Well, um, it says in Acts 2.10, and this is a perhaps moment. In Acts 2.10, it says, uh, Phrygia and Pamphylia and Egypt and the parts of Libya belong to Cyrene and visitors from Rome. Meaning there were people there during Pentecost and when Peter gave that great sermon in Acts chapter 2 as well, there were people from Rome and perhaps, speculation, perhaps people there heard the gospel, got saved, went back, told other people about Jesus, because you remember that's how you spread the gospel, that's what we're called to do is tell other people about Jesus, did that and then the church got started. Nonetheless, Paul probably wrote this letter to them in about 57 AD while he was in Corinth dealing with that whole matter there. Now, the question we have to ask ourselves is, okay, who is receiving this letter? Well, we believe that most of the converts there in Rome that started that church were originally Jewish. And so they were Jewish converts who knew the Old Testament, knew the Scripture, heard about the Messiah, connected the dots. God connected the dots for them, trusted Jesus. And so you had Jewish people that converted to Christianity or are following Jesus. Makes sense? Well, then in Rome in that time period, after about five years uh, after the church started, uh, Claudius was the leader in Rome. And Claudius thought, we got to get rid of these Jewish people and kicked them all out. Well, along the way, the, some of the Greek people or the Gentiles had trusted Jesus as well, and I think there were some of them there within the church of Rome. And so that population of Gentiles within the church started to grow. Then after five years, the Jewish people came back into the church. Now we have a very diverse church of Jewish people and Gentile people, all trying to follow Jesus. Can I tell you how complicated that is? Jewish people, they had the law and one God. The Greeks 
had no law and many gods. The Jewish people had a certain way they ate and a certain way they wore their clothes and certain routines and rituals. Jewish, uh, the Gentile people, like, eh, we'll eat whatever. Uh, the, Gentile, or the Jewish people had circumcision. The Gentiles were like, not having that. I mean, so like, it's a, it's a big, big difference. So much so, you start adding Christ's new way of grace within all of that, it causes for a lot of tension. You think being a Republican and Democrat, or you think being of a different ethnicity, you think that creates a lot of tension, and it does. Imagine in that scenario right there. And so what Paul is doing, what he's going to do, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he's going to, he's going to give them a letter on community, how to, how to build community together. How are, they going to, how are they going to be united? And I would ask that about how are we going to be united? Verse 1 tells us. He says, Paul, servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. If you were to ask me, Ty, what's the main theme for the book of Romans, I would say the main theme for the book of Romans is the gospel. And it says right here, the gospel of God. It's not someone else's gospel. It's not man's gospel. It is the gospel of God. And I would say specifically what it means to be justified by faith and faith alone. That's what Luther was getting at during the Reformation, okay? But if I were to say there's another theme that I think attaches to it, and when you really read and see what's going on within the book of Romans, the other theme that attaches to it, and in light of the gospel, is the theme of unifying the church. Can, can we hear that? That the church is supposed to be united. Yes, we're supposed to be from different backgrounds, different uh, tribe, tongue, nation, different in all ways. But because of the gospel, the gospel is what's going to unite us. And so if we ever feel here at Grace Point Church, hey, we're not united. Hey, we're kind of splintered. Hey, we're not, we're not doing well together. It's because of the gospel. For some reason, we have forgotten the gospel. We have left the gospel behind. You see, the reality is what is going to unite us is not a style of music. A style of music is not going to unite us. You're like, hey, if they would just play more of my music, then I would like to play some more. We'd get along better. No, that's not going to work. The, the translation that we use, the ESV is what I typically use, that's not what's going to unite us. If we were to hold a class on diversity and, and how to work through those you know, you know, tensions and all that, that's not going to unite us. You know what's going to unite us as a people group? The gospel. A complete and total surrender to the good news of Jesus, the gospel of God. That's why Paul writes later on in verse 16, it says this. He says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. He's like, it, it, it doesn't bother. I know it's offensive. I know like it, some cultures can't hear. I, I get that. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? It's the power of God for salvation to who? Who? Everyone. Greeks and Gentiles. Or, or Gentiles and Jews, everyone who believes, to the Jews first and also to the Greeks. But, but, but hear this. The Gentiles from the beginning were always to be included into this good news. They were always, that was God's intention. Like this gospel is not something new that popped up and the Jews got onto it first. But no, it was intended for everyone. Look down at Romans 1 verse 2. It says it's about the gospel of God, which he, God, promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. What are the Holy Scriptures that, that Paul's referring to right here? What's the answer to that? What's the Holy Scriptures he's referring to? Come on. Old Testament. 
He's referring to the Old Testament writings, maybe the Gospels, but the Old Testament writings is what they had right there. That's what he is referring to right there. And so he is saying that Jesus, this good news, has been proclaimed all the way back to Genesis, and now we see from here all the way to Revelation. The whole Bible is gospel. The whole Bible is about the good news of Jesus. Um, last week, we celebrated the resurrection of Jesus. And if you read the Gospels, you see when Jesus come up out of the grave, how he lived for 40 days. And one of the things he was doing when he came back alive and defeated sin, Satan, death, he started to teach his disciples. And so he's on the road, he's walking away, and his couple of disciples were with him. He starts to teach them. And this is what it says in Luke 24, 40, 44 and 45. Make sure you don't miss this. Jesus said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I am still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, what's the law of Moses? Anybody? The Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, right, right, right? The law and the prophets. What's the prophets? What are the prophets? Major prophets, minor, you know, Isaiah, Jeremiah, then the minor prophets, the one you can't pronounce, Habakkuk, you know, those, right? And the Psalms. Don't act like you're not the only one. What is going on? Don't act like you're the only one that can't pronounce those. And the Psalms as well. So essentially what Jesus is saying is this. The Old Testament is about me. I mean, if you go all the way back to the beginning in Genesis 3.15, there's a promise that one will come to crush the head of the serpent. Who's the one? If you go back all the way to Genesis and talk about uh, Abraham, it says, Abraham, I'll make you a great nation. You'll be a great nation for the other nations, so all the nations will follow me. And, and so Abraham was saved, not because of his faith, but because of the object of his faith. And in Genesis, the object of his faith is the promises of God. And then as we see that you know, uh, uh, laid out a little bit more, the promises of God find all their fulfillment in a person called the Messiah, the Jewish people will say, and the Christ, the Greek people will say. Who's the Messiah? Who's the Christ? Jesus. So everything is all about Jesus. This gospel is not for man. It's the declaration of God that God saves Sinners, that sinners can be in a right relationship with God and his blessing. Sinners can be forgiven and free from their sins. This is the gospel of God. It's the good news. Not by religion, not by works, not by heritage, not by upbringing. Single-handedly that God saves sinners. So that's what Paul's saying right here. He says, this is the gospel of God. Now, back in verse 1, he says, he is a servant and an apostle. Paul's giving basically his credentials to people who never met him. That way they will listen to his letter. Now, what does it take to be an apostle? Can we be an apostle today? Don't answer. There's three criteria, criteria to be an apostle. To be an apostle, you had, you had three criteria. Number one, you had to be with Jesus during his earthly ministry. Number two, you had to witness Jesus' resurrection. Number three, you had to be appointed by Jesus himself. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. What is this? <laughs> it's the worst. What, is that, what does that say about Paul? If you know Paul's history, wait, he, he, doesn't, he fails the first two. Is, is Paul lying? Is Paul misrepresenting himself? Ah, if you go back to Acts chapter 9, you see Jesus do something different, right? Remember Acts chapter 9? Paul's going out, everything's good. Jesus like blinds him and Jesus is like, hey, you're no longer going to be doing this. You're going to now be working for me. You're going to be my... So, so Jesus calls him specifically. He sees the resurrected Jesus. He's called by him. And so he is an apostle. Question, can we be apostles? And the answer is no. 
Let me answer it for you real quick. No. In the office, the idea of the office of apostle, we cannot. In the sense of set apart and living missional and making disciples and planting churches, sure. But the office, the calling, I, I don't think so. But what's more interesting, in my opinion, than him being called apostle is what comes uh, before that. Look back at verse 1. Paul uses the word servant. He says he's a servant. But servant's not a strong enough word. The word servant in the original Greek is doulos. And doulos in the time period back then was not a hired servant who could come and go as they please. A doulos was a person who had been purchased. And once purchased, he or she became the master's possession. What vernacular would we use instead of servant nowadays? Slave. Slave. We can't be apostles, but we can be servants. And I think the stronger word right here, that if you are saved, if you are a Christian, that you acknowledge Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and you exclusively worship him and him alone, my friends, you are a slave to Jesus. That sounds weird, doesn't it? I feel the tension in that. It sounds weird. It, it feels a little bit um, paradoxical, maybe, of like, wait a minute. I thought that before Jesus, I was a slave to sin. I thought that before Jesus, I was a slave to my own flesh. I thought that before Jesus, I was kind of a slave to the enemy, kind of on team, team Satan a little bit. Like, I, I feel like I was a slave to that. How does he save me and then make me a slave again? I think that's the paradoxical nature of like, you're no longer, if you're in Christ, you're no longer a slave to sin. You're no longer a slave to the enemy. You're no longer slave to your flesh and even the world. You are now a slave to Christ. He calls you to the royal liberty of slavery to him. And that's why we call master. Why? Listen, listen, listen. That's where we find freedom. I mean, think about it. When Jesus is our master, he changes everything because we allow him to direct everything in our life. And as creator of all, he knows what's best of our life. Imagine if we were to live as Jesus was really our master and we were to be at his beck and call and we were to submit under his authority and live out that way in all areas of life, including decisions we make, how we lead ourselves, how we live within our marriages, how we live within our parenting, how we live within our vocation, our work, and all of that, our words, our actions, our attitude. Imagine what that would look like. It would be great, right? Now, would you say it'd be freeing or do you say, no, that sounds terrible? That would be freeing. He is the Lord and master of our lives. We are no longer masters of our own. We must understand that. Christian, listen to me. You are no longer your own leader. You are not autonomous. You are not just an individual and get to do your individual things. No, if you are in Christ, you are his. You belong to him and you have submitted and surrendered yourself to his authority to him be master. Does that make sense? Because that's what Paul is saying right there. I want you to take that word master and I want you to hang on to it for just a minute. Put it in your pocket. Sound good? We're going to come back to that. Verse two, it says, which he promised before, beforehand through his prophet in the Holy Scripture concerning his son, verse three, who was descended from David according to the flesh. And so as we said, the gospel that he said in verse one is all about Jesus, the son I said that the gospels all over the Old Testament and what Paul is doing to those in Rome and for us as well, he's connecting the dots. He's saying that the Old Testament scriptures are all about Jesus. They're all about the promised one or the Messiah. And the Old Testament is where we got the information about the Messiah. 
And so if you want to know like, hey, I want to know more about the Messiah, Jesus, you're going to look in the Old Testament. They would be asking questions like, where would Jesus come from? Or who would his mother be? Well, when you look at the Old Testament, his mother would be a virgin. Who would he be related to? If you look in the Old Testament, he's going to be related to King who? Where would he be born? Well, where's the Messiah going to be born? Where was he born? And what name would he be given? Well, he'd be given the name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And Jesus, yes. And then we would learn about his death, that he's going to die. Well, how would he die? Well, the Old Testament gives us this picture of potentially the cross. We see that he'd be pierced. And where would he be pierced at? Well, we look in the Old Testament, it tells us Jerusalem, outside of the city. See, Paul wants us to see, and them to see as well, Jesus all the way back to the Garden of Eden, through the patriarchs and the prophets as well. Now, I don't think he's just connecting the dots there. I think he's doing something else. When he says, uh, descendant of David, I believe what he's saying, and he says, according to the flesh, what he's trying to say is this, that Jesus is also fully man. This is a very theological letter to help us understand. He's saying that Jesus is fully man. He uses the word flesh there. When Paul used the word flesh, he uses it typically in two different ways. When one way is our sin nature, another way is our skin and bones and wires and hoses and everything inside of us, right? And so he's saying that Jesus was fully flesh. That means he was a human just like you and just like me. And he was tempted just like you and just like me. And he was under the law of God just like you and just like me. And he got tired at times and hungry at times and annoyed at times and gassy at times and all those kinds. You ever thought about that? He was human just like us. And yet, he never sinned. He never gave in to temptation. And so he was fully human. But then it also says he was not just human. It says something else. Look at verse 4. It says, and was declared to be the Son of God. That is very uh, deity language right there, Son of God, deity, like God. In power according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Christ Jesus our Lord. So when we read this, it should set off some alarms for us. This, should, this, this verse should make us kind of nervous as Christians, like, oh, what does Paul mean when he says, declared to be the Son of God? It's like, it's like if, if, not, if we don't read this right, it kind of feels like uh, that he wasn't God, son of God. He wasn't fully God. And someone declared him to be like, there's an old heresy. You know what a heresy means, right? Heresy means like a, a, a teaching from the Bible that is false, that is not true, that the Bible crushes and it, uh, it, it's not good. It's not, there's lots of heresies that have happened over 2000 years of Christianity. Well, uh, there's one heresy called adoptionism. And adoptionism is that Jesus was so good at being human. He was just human like you and I. He was so good at being human that God looked at him and said, man, you know how to human well. And so I'm going to make you son of God. I'm going to adopt you as my son and made him in to being God-like. That is not true. The Bible blows that up. The Bible shows us that Jesus has always existed. He took on flesh when he came during the first advent, but he has always existed. That he is not only fully man, that he became fully man, but he's always been fully God. Now, what declare means here is that before the resurrection, most people saw Jesus as this wonderful man of God who taught the things of God and performed miracles by the power of God. But what he's saying in this text, the resurrection is declaring to the world that Jesus has not become the Son of God by, by proving that he is and has always been and always will be the Son of God. 
By what evidence do we believe that Jesus is the Son of God? It says right here, by the testimony of God who has declared him to be the Son through the power of the resurrection. So Paul's essentially saying, I'm not the one declaring to you that Jesus is the Son of God. God has declared to you that by the Holy Spirit and the power of the resurrection, he is and has always been the Son of God. Make sense? It's, it's important to, to know that. Verse 5. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. So it's basically saying right here, the purpose of the gospel is obedience of, uh, of faith for the sake of his name. The sake of his name basically means to live life to the glory of Jesus. Paul's mission was to take this gospel to all people's group. Paul's longing is that the nations uh, may have obedience that flows from faith. And he used this phrase right here, obedience of faith, which means a faith that leads to obedience. That faith is the root, obedience is the fruit. Saving faith is an obedient faith. We trust in Jesus, and now by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, we have the ability to obey Jesus. And the ultimate goal of gospel ministry is, and life is for the sake of his name, and the his is Jesus. And it says right here in verse 6, you who are called. What does he mean? He's talking to you Christians. You have been called to saving faith and obedience to Jesus by faith, right? Right? Yes. Even in the word call, when you look at the root of the call, it's the word voco. It's where we get the idea of vocation, meaning this. It is your job to trust Jesus and to walk in faith. It's like my son, he's getting ready to graduate high school. And I told him at this stage of life, his job is to do school and to do school well. And so act like that school is your employer and you are the employee. Christian, it's the same with you. When you said yes to Jesus, when you uh, trusted him by faith, your job now is to live out obedience. Now listen to me. Don't, don't miss this. Uh, uh, obedience doesn't lead to faith. It's faith that leads to obedience. That's where we find freedom. Steve Brown said this. Obedience doesn't lead to freedom. Freedom leads to obedience. If you get that backwards, you, use you lose both your freedom and eventually your obedience. We're called to be called out and obedient to Jesus by faith in him. But I want to show you one more thing, verse 7. We're almost there. To all those in Rome, so now he's giving his greeting to them, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. This is, this is his greeting usually in opening letters. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Two things I want to pull out from there. Number one. Notice he says, loved by God. That's important. He doesn't say that you love God first, and because you love God first, now he's going to respond. No, no, no. God is the initiator. That you are loved by God. C can you hear that this morning? Sometimes in Christian world, we'll say, God loves you, and we're like, yeah, cool. And we'll go on about our life. No, no, no. The God of the universe loves you. And he loved you first before you ever loved him. Our Bible tells us that over and over and over. And then the second one, he says, called to be saints. How is this possible? How are we called to be saints? We're not called because we're saints, that's for sure. We're called, because, we're called to be saints because we're called. 
We are saints because he has made us saints. Saint means set apart, sanctified, all because of what Jesus has done. When Jesus looks, looks at you, you are a saint. You should now make people in your home refer to you as Saint Bill. <laughs> you should. And then everyone's going to look at you and be like, you don't act like a saint. You're like, well, it's true. <laughs> Positionally before God, he sees me as a saint. I'm trying my best. I want to be a saint. He says right here, saints loved by God and given us grace. It leads to peace. Okay. This is an, an overview, an introduction, kind of the opening the door of the book of Romans. This is the beginning of our journey. My question is this. Are you ready for this journey? Are you up for it? Do you want to see God do something amazing in your life, transformational in your life, free you from some things, comfort you in some areas, convict you in some areas? Are you ready for that? Okay. That's got to stop. Then there's one thing, one thing this morning you got to get right. One thing this morning, I think this is, it's ground level. One thing that we need to be on the same page. One thing you need to have right in your mind and heart and your life. And it's back in verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. What does the word servant mean? Very, very offensive term, for sure. It means to be owned by someone. It means you have a master. But for us as Christians, it's the best term ever. Question is, don't answer, are you a slave of Jesus? Is Jesus truly your master? Who in here by a show of hands have had or right now have two or more jobs? Just raise your hand. You say, hey, at one time in life I've had two jobs, or maybe right now I've had two jobs, or I have two roles, or like I've had two jobs, right? You've done that before? Um, it's okay. You can have two bosses. It's okay. Um, in school, you ever been in school before? School's a neat place, right? Uh, have you ever been in school to where you had more than one teacher? You had maybe multiple teachers, multiple professors. Is that you? Have you ever had multiple teachers, multiple professors? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's good. You can have multiple teachers and multiple or multiple professors. That's fine. You, you ever had two hobbies? Any, anyone here have two hobbies at one time eventually in their life? Yeah. Some of you are like, I got 10 hobbies. Well, uh, that's extreme. Um, it's okay to have two hobbies. You, you, ever, uh, you, ever watch, um, you ever watch a sports game, like two sports games at once? Like you got the picture-in-picture, picture, or you might be bougie and have like two TVs set up or something like that? You ever, you ever watch two te television at one time? Or maybe your iPad, your phone, and a television, something like that? You ever done that? Raise your hand if you've done that. Let me see you. It's okay. You can do that. Can you have two masters? can't. Jesus says in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. No one. For either he will hate the one and love the other. Do you hear that? Or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. And in the context, he was talking about money, but you can take money out and put anything in that line. Question. Question. Does Jesus tell the truth 100% of the time? Is Jesus right when he says this? Is Jesus saying this to you and I? Yeah. See, in order to have a master and be a slave, you must give up all masters and submit to only one. See, 
Here's the truth about Jesus. He's trying to save you and I from all other masters. All other masters in our life are just horrible taskmasters that just run us ragged and run us empty and get us addicted and get us all spun up. All other masters. Well, he's trying to save us from all other masters and be the true master in our life. But listen, you and I, we're good. We're so good at picking other masters all the time. All the time. David Foster Wallace in 2005 uh, he's, uh, he was an atheist, actually ended up um, c- killing himself. Uh, he gave a speech at Ken- Kenya College, uh, and he talks about this idea of masters. He used the word worship. He says, everyone worships something. And listen to what he says, because I think he's onto something. He says, everybody worships. The only choice we get is to what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel like you have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, and it will, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid. You will never, you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart. You will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is they're unconscious. They're default settings. We are always, our hearts are always striving to make idols and masters out of everything. And what Jesus is trying to save us from is our self. See, the gospel of God declares that God saves us. And when God saves us, he deserves, and which is good for us, he deserves our complete and total allegiance. He deserves our heart, our time, our resources, our energy, our choice, our decision, everything. He deserves everything. If not, we often, we often attempt to serve multiple masters, including God. Maybe we'll serve God one day, career for a season, parenting for a season, hobby for a season, approval and allure for a season, or whatever it may be. If not careful, this way of living makes our faith more like a hobby, like gardening, baking, and scrapbooking, and not worshiping God and God alone. Because our faith at times, we just dabble. We just want part of Jesus or Jesus to be a part of our life. John Calvin said this, whoever wants half of Christ loses the whole. There's a story in the Civil War days before American uh, slaves were freed. There's a northerner who was known throughout the region as a guy who loved people. He loved God and he loved people. And one of the things this guy would do was very precarious to a lot of people, that he would go to the slave auctions and he would buy people back in freedom. And it was just unheard of and people just didn't like it. And so one day he goes and he, he, he buys a young girl and frees her. And as he, he frees her, he looked at her. He says, you're now free. With amazement, she responded, you mean I'm free to do whatever I want to do? He said, yeah, whatever you want to do. I, I, I'm free now to say whatever I want to say? He's like, yeah, you can, you can say whatever you want to say. She's like, I'm, I'm free to be whoever I want to be? He's like, absolutely. She said, I'm, I'm, I'm free to go wherever I want to go. He says, you can go anywhere you want with a big smile on his face. And then she looked at him. She said, you know what? I want to go with you. The same is with Jesus. What he saves us from, the only proper response is, you know what? I want to go with you. And now I want to live for you. 
And now I want everything to be centered upon you. And now I want to sit under your authority. You are my master. He's good. And if that is true, that is really true of us, and that we'll live out what Romans 1.5 says. Look at the back part of Romans 1.5. It says, for the sake of his name. That everything I want to do in life is for the sake of his name. What if we were to live like that? Like everything we do. You know what? I do this for the sake of his name. If not careful, we'll do everything for the sake of our name. And we'll do everything for the sake of something else other than Jesus. We'll do everything for the sake of looking uh, successful in the world. We'll do everything for the sake of trying to have everything that the world has and do everything that the world does. We'll do everything for the sake of anything else other than Jesus. And sometimes, if not careful, we believe the lie that we can do it all and have it all, and we can live for the sake of everything outside of Jesus. That's why we run as hard as we run. That's why we fill our calendars up. That's why we do all the things we do so we can look good and we live for the sake of all these things. And we get to the end of the day, and you're like, you know what? I live for the sake of my children, and my children being well-rounded, my children to have what I didn't have, and my children to be in every activity. I live for the sake of making money because perhaps many of you here grew up for not, not having any money and like you have this mindset of scared city. So you're like, you know, I live for the sake of money and having the security that it brings. I, I live for the sake of just being busy. That way I never feel lonely and I never really have to do, do with, it, uh, with what's going on inside of me. I deal, you know, I, I live for the sake of relationships because that's what really fills me. But like they just feel surfacy and empty. I live for the sake of on and on and on. And sometimes we wonder, why am I so gassed? Why am I so fatigued? Why does it feel like nothing aligns in my life? And here's what we do as Christians. We live for the sake of everything else and sprinkle in some Jesus sometimes. And then we go to God and we say, God, would you please just give me some peace? And God doesn't give you peace. And so we look at God and we say, God, you must not be good because you won't give me peace when I ask for it. Listen, listen, listen. God would not be good if he gave you peace while we're running after other masters. Why? He is the only one who can truly give you peace. And, and so, perhaps, perhaps, that's what the whole book study on the book of Romans is going to be for you. Figuring out what life looks like under the mastery of Jesus. Perhaps that's what we need the most and that's what he's going to do. How to live for his name's sake. So let's just see what happens. Let me pray for us. Let's go to the Lord's table. Father, thank you so much for your just love, your grace, and your mercy. And thank you so much for this important, crucial letter to the church in Rome and to us as well. God, we have seen how you powerfully use your word, specifically the book of Romans about centuries. And so, God, I, I just pray that through this study, through this book, you would help us to be consistent. You'd help us to listen. You'd help us to have open hearts, that you'd give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to understand. And God, I pray that you would just, you would call us away from living for the, the sake of so many other things, including self, and call us out to live for your sake, for your name's sake. May we center our lives around you. And so, through this book, would you teach us the great truths of Jesus, the great mysteries of our, of our, the doctrines and the great uh, love that you have for each and every one of us through your grace. 
God, I pray for my brothers and sisters who maybe maybe come in here today just feeling weary, feeling weak. I pray that you would strengthen them by your power and through your word. God, would you comfort us where we need comfort? Would you challenge and convict us where we need challenge and conviction? I pray as you're doing this, as what your intention was through this book, is that you would be creating in us as a church unity, that we would be a people unified around the good news of Jesus. As you do that, would you give us joy? Would you give us just the energy just to share this good news, as Paul said, to the nations, to all those around us? May it be for our good, may it be for the defeat of the enemy, and Jesus, may all this be for your glory and your glory alone. We pray in Christ's name, amen.